All right, here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's episode 96. Yes, it is. Science in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, Uh sorry. I was just thinking about 96. But I'm done well, thinking about it now. Well, well, what were you thinking? Was there anything that was? Nope. It's. Uh, I think the uh, the thought that I had just was. Um, nope. It's just not a shareable. Uh, you know. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I'll just. I don't just, know where you're going with that, but I'll just I, let I it sit there. Uh, yeah, that's. That, I think we're gonna leave that. I think mathematically, there's nothing special about '96. Nothing. That, you know? Nope. Nothing. Nothing nope. at all for reals. Nothing special about it. I mean. You know, nothing divisible by three, divisible by two. So clearly not one of my favorite numbers. Not one of your favorite numbers. Yeah. So so outside of that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. I feel, yeah, we'll ju- we're just gonna move on. <laughs> you were you were like I, on your heels, man. I love well, it. I, I love yeah, it. I don't. I feel uh, yeah. I, I, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna, it, does, it doesn't happen often, but I love it when I say <laughs> <There> it. it <laughs> <is. and laughs> okay. So today, today, <laughs> what we're talking about is, uh, so t- today we thought we'd talk about is, um, and this came out of a conversation that I had with somebody recently about, um, sort of thinking about culturally relevant science teaching, right. And this idea of like, what does that mean? Um, and this person was asking me like, Hey, how are you going to teach all this science using like stuff from the local community and things that kids, um, you know, are going to be really interested in, in, you know, because it's a local issue or because it's a, an issue that, that they can, you know, see in their own community or culture. Right. And so I, I wanted to address this because I think, um, I think it's while, while, you know, when you read about, um, these, you know, the framing of culturally relevant, you often are given examples like this, right? The, the people describing it often do choose examples that are from, um, from the local community, right? Like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to look at, um, the stream that runs behind the school and exactly. Uh, we're go- hey. or, the, or there's a fracking in our local area. We're going to look at the impacts of fracking on our, on our, you know, whatever groundwater increase of earthquakes, whatever it is that you want to look at in terms of fracking or fracking fluid or something like that. Right. And so I just wanted to talk about that. And, um, and I think the, what, what I'm, I guess troubled by in terms of that way of thinking about cultural, cultural relevance. Um, because I think it pushes it into a very small box of things that count as culturally relevant. And it, it makes it easy, um, to, to then just say, well, I can't do that. Right. Like I can't turn my whole curriculum into, um, it's based on kids, you know, local, you know, I teach, whatever I teach physics or I teach chemistry and I can't teach all of those things. Yeah, like through... how, I teach, I teach astronomy. Like, right. how am I going to, how am I going to do that with astronomy? Right. Like, or earth and space science. You even get that a lot too, right? Yeah. Like, Oh, the, the, you know, the geology around here is, you know, I live in Kansas. It's just, I live in a big flat plane, right? There's not, there's no way to do locally relevant issues when it comes to earth science and, you know, or whatever it is, but, the, but it becomes then an excuse to give up on the whole pedagogical approach of cultural relevance. So I want to, so, I want to so, unpack that a little and talk about it. So before, before we jumped in, do you think that's like just one of those, 
because I find whenever, you know, presented with like some sort of change or some sort of innovation, there are, you know, different approaches. And one approach is, yeah, I already do that, right? Yeah. And we have that or that that's too hard or it's impossible. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So those are the, you know, at least two of the naysaying groups, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. And so do you think that that this is just that, that this is like a, or do you think that the the way it's interpreted in itself, like is just, you know, pro- is the problem, the way that it's it's interpreted or the way it's like held up as, you know, this is the model is the problem, which, it, yeah. which is. I, I mean, I guess that's a good question. It's probably both and, right? I mean, I guess, um, you know, part of it is, again, I feel like these examples that get used. So, I mean, this, and this isn't a new thing that's even about cultural relevance, right? Like one of the ones that I remember from the, the uh, National Science Education Standards, which are, what, 25, 30 years old now? Something like, like one of the examples that they use in there about good science teaching is this, like, there's a kid sitting in class, looks out the window, sees this row of trees in the, right. in the, um, in the park or in the, in the, the, by the um, school playground by the school, by the school right. and says, Hey, one of those trees is dead and all the rest are doing fine. What's going on there. And then the idea is like the teacher builds a whole unit about ecology and plant life and all this stuff. And they based collect on this data kid. and they're and out they, there. Yeah. And they report to like the school board and the local community. And, and as a result, like some change happens in the schoolyard that, is, and that tree comes back to life and whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Comes back to life. It's, yes. it's a reincarnation story. Right. That's really what we want yes. to have in our, in our science <laughs> curriculum. Uh, so, um, but you know, even, even at that time, people were like, that's completely insane to think that that's the way you're going to write yeah. it, run a science class. Like some random comment by some kid now turns into the whole curriculum and, and is reported out to the local community and become, and I think, so part of it is that when you use examples like that, you, you are potentially setting really unrealistic expectations and it does make it easy for the naysayers to say, well, I can't do that. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. That's a huge amount of work even. And then like, how do I deal with the fact that, you know, period one and period four may have different questions. Like, you know, Bobby, the kid who looked out the window and saw the dead tree was in period four, but he's not in period one and period one doesn't care about the dead tree in the, in the playground. So like, how are we going to, how are we going to do that? So I think the, the problem becomes the, that these are used as examples because they're, um, because they're powerful and because they, they, they represent on some level, this core idea that we want to respect and build our science um, learning environments around, around kids' ideas, yep. but it takes such an extreme position that then people are like, "Well, how do you do that then?" Because I teach, you know, whatever, and I need to, I need them to understand how to balance equations, and and I can't do that if we're talking about like trees in the playground. Yeah, so it, um, it's 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 much more expansive curriculum than what that that one event or that one subject would do and it's like well how do i teach all this other stuff if i'm just uh you know and i think that then there's also the concern that they're just like playing that they're just like out there you know like this isn't real science the real science is happening someplace else yeah there and there's like the you know and this is another another thing is this like discovery learning right like people describe summer hill 
which is a famous English school where basically the kids just like whatever they were interested in, that's what you investigated or did. And this is not just in science, this is across the curriculum. So it was completely student um, run, basically not even driven. Um, and there were all sorts of problems with that too. Like, I think the tension that we talk about a lot on this show is the, the tension between creating environments that provide students opportunities to, to have, or to engage with their epistemic agency, with their ability to, to identify and use the knowledge tools of science and without making it like, a free for all, which is just about whatever, right? So, because we do have things that we want kids to understand, there are big ideas in science. You know, there we don't want you know that again. Going back to the idea of the NGSS, it's like there are big ideas, and how those big ideas play out can be individualized and contextualized. But those big ideas shouldn't disappear. And so, thinking about like, well, if you're going to teach kids a set of big ideas, and that's going to happen in an academic year then that puts a constraint on what you can do in terms of the phenomenon that you're going to investigate. So it can't always be just like whatever the kids think up. Now, if we change the first part of that equation, if we say, look, we're not going to have standards anymore, right? We're just going to say science is a class where you investigate whatever kids are interested in investigating and they learn whatever they learn from that. And, and we're, we're just focused on the process and we don't care about any sort of big ideas being learned specific ones. They'll learn some, but they won't learn what was, well, then that changes the whole equation, but that's not where we are. Right that, now. That's never going to happen. That's right. never going to, you know, that, it seems unlikely anyway. Right. Well, I, I can't imagine that we would move to a place in which that level of control would be handed over to individual teachers or individual schools. I think that there's still, you know, a like these national professional bodies like NSTA and others who are, you know, playing a role in in, you know, deciding standards or and then we have, you know, state boards of education that are governing just like Pennsylvania just recently you know, updated their science standards or in the process of updating their standards. So I don't think that we're going to go from that, which is like highly standardized to like just having none. It's just, it's just impossible. It would, it's just, you say it's highly unlikely. I, I'm going to, you know, stake a, a flag in the never going to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I think, and, and I'm not even saying it's an, it's a desirable state, but I no. do think this idea that, um, but but I think the the thing that then is pernicious about this is it does give, as you say, the sort of naysayers a path away from this to say right. like, yeah, I can't do that, so I'm just not going to do that. Um, so, but I but I think that they they say it for a few reasons. One, because it's really hard. It's really hard to like come up with that. I mean, I think that's you know giving teachers almost an impossible task to be able to you know, do that, you know, five periods a day with five different groups of students and then have it change enough through the course of the year that they can drive all the curriculum through the year. That's an impossible task. That's a, that's a, that's a tall mountain to climb. That's And, and I think that, so that's, that's the first thing that I think is, is, is challenging about that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But there are, there are other parts of that. That's, that's challenging too. I mean, yeah, it's just, Well, yeah. I mean, another challenge that, or another thing that I don't like about it is it, um, it treats 
culture and ideas and interests of students as unitary, even though the the goal right. of it is is supposedly to be driven by student in, interests. But like you say, if if I've got 100, 120 students, right? If I'm a typical size teacher, I teach five classes, and I've got one hundred twenty ish kids a day. Well, if only one, if we're following an investigation based on one kid's interest, it's difficult to make the argument that that's going to be relevant for all of those kids, at least to the same degree. So, so you haven't solved some magical problem. I'm not saying you can't get kids invested and engaged in that because you can. And maybe if it is a local issue, you can get a higher percentage engaged with that issue than you would if it wasn't a local issue in their community. But it isn't a magic bullet. It doesn't magically say, oh, all the kids are going to be engaged now because this is a thing that's happening in the local community. So they're going to care about the science or the whatever. That's not the way that works. So so it also gives this sense of like, oh, if I if I have one of these things, then it's going to solve all my problems and make the 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 teaching, and I think this is the tricky bit too, it will make the teaching automatically more culturally relevant. So right. if, I, if I create this environment where we're investigating a local phenomenon or a local issue, that makes it culturally relevant. And, and I think we would say, and Brian, friend of the show, Brian Brown would say, that, that, that ain't it. That ain't the right. whole thing. It's more complicated than that. And when you reduce it to that, and I think I'm not saying the people that you choose those as examples are reducing it to that, but I think people who read that sometimes do reduce it and say, oh, well, all I have to do is find something that's about a, about the local community, and then they lecture about it, and it's like, oh, okay, so, so yeah. now you're doing culturally relevant teaching because you pick something from the local community, and you're going to explain it to kids. Well, I think that for me, the most important part of it is building in that epistemic agency. Every time that you you use that phrase, I just, it just warms my heart because it is really, I think the the goal of not just science classrooms, but it should be other classrooms too, is to hand over some of that agency to students. And I think that's the, the critical part. I mean, if there's the, if the goal, you know, when we have used that big term, you know, culturally relevant or culturally responsive teaching, I mean, that's really what it's about. I mean, the, the, at the heart of it is about that agency. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if that is the part we focus on, rather than, oh, picking something local, that's a way of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. It's a way of, of getting, you know, supporting that epistemic agency is because, you know, kids are typically interested in stuff that's happening, you know, that they can see in their world, but that that's not, you know, that's not the only thing, the only way to do it, you know, it's, and so there are other ways of, of, of doing this, of building epistemic agency with our students. And, and like, like you said, that ain't it, right. That like, that's not, that's not the only way. Right. And it's not even not the only way. It's not really the fundamental way. Right. Right. Like the the fundamental way that you you do that is um, is through a process. Right. It's not the choice of the phenomenon per se and choosing phenomenon are hard. I'm not trying to say like even if you're not picking some local community thing, like getting a phenomenon that's going to drive curriculum that kids are going to engage with and understand, you know, lead to the kinds of understandings that you want them to understand. That's hard in and of itself. Right. And, and there's going to be lots of missteps in that process. So adding the layer of having to do it in it with something that's a specific social cultural issue in the community adds a whole nother layer to that, like choosing a phenomenon is hard problem, but, but 
the thing that we, I think, really care about, and going back to, you know, Brian Brown's work is like what we fundamentally want when we talk about this, whether it's epistemic agency or just um, culturally responsive forms of teaching. I'm going to use that. I'm not going to try and differentiate between all the different sort of culturally. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like what the fundamental point of that is, is you need to talk with your kids about their ideas and helping that those ideas improve. And that happens in the context of you framing a phenomenon for them. Right. And, and so that framing of the phenomenon does limit what kids can talk about and think about. But again, that that's a constraint that's both necessary and useful. Like, and so this, so this idea that it's better if kids get to think about everything is not necessarily true. It doesn't mean that that's not, you know, in the future that might not be useful, but, but in, in almost every respect or every um, area of science, let's say like, you don't get to think about every problem you want you, there are only certain problems that people need to think about. Right. And I think we hear this too. Like um, when you, you know, like people will come into a doctoral program in science education and say, I'm really interested in X, right? Right. Let's say I'm really interested in inquiry science teaching. Okay. So that's like me going into a physicist's office and say, you know, I'm really interested about how balls seem to always roll down ramps. You put them at the top of the ramp and they always seem to roll to the bottom of the ramp. And I think there's something going on there that might be interesting. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm trivializing here, but this idea of like, you know, what, what we know and what we don't know uh, needs, needs to be um, d- deeply considered and, and is constrained by the discipline. And so when we say we're going to give kids a, a phenomenon to investigate and that limits what they can think about, well, that's from my point of view, that's good because that's the way it always is. Like there is no such thing really as just sitting around thinking about whatever you want because you always have to constrain your thinking in some way. Yeah, yeah but I, I think, you know, I, I, one recent episode, I, I, I talked about how, you know, reading this book and um, the missing course and the missing course, it says that the, the students are our content. And I was, I was, I said that student, the, the students are our content, not only to, to teach, but also to learn. Right. And, but I think that's the critical part about this is that if we're going to do this and do this, well, we have to know the kids that are in the room and, and you, we have to interact with them and understand their, their ideas and their language and the things that they're talking about and then build it on that. And, and then from that, you know, it's not like, wide open like you're saying pick it you know there are you know topics we can choose and things we can do and it might not always be something that's happening in their backyard or something they could see out the window but it's something that's going to be something that can build interest or something that they can you know engage with or something that would be motivating something that would build that epistemic agency to help them say you know this is something that i want to figure out because i see it's important Right. Um, rather than, you know, okay, we're going to study, I don't know, like pick just the, let's do titration, you know, right. like, and you know, why would anyone want to learn that? I'm not knocking titration or chemistry, yeah, but it's just, hater. I'm not a titration hater, <laughs> yeah, but know. I'm just like trying to pick something abstract that it would be something that would be hard. But I think that titration could be something that could be learned in in pursuit of something else, something else that would be 
relevant to the students, something meaningful to the students and something would be in their, their worldview. And yeah, but I think that, that gets at this difference between like, what is a phenomenon and what is science? Right. Understandings, right. It's like, okay, I can, I'm going to get kids really excited about photosynthesis. No, you're not. Photosynthesis yeah. is not exciting. Like maybe to, maybe to like 12 people in the world, it's exciting. But, but that said, plant growing and how do plants grow? Like that can be really cool. And it can be really cool because we don't think about it. Like most men on the street, women on the street, people on the street that you ask, like, like explain to me how you get from an acorn to an oak tree. Like, how does that happen? It's like, well, you know, they, they just grow. It's like, yeah, okay. So, so, but, but how, like that's right. It's, it's when you really stop and think about it, it's like, how, how does that happen? Like you have this little tiny thing, right? You have this little tiny thing it's in the ground and you come back 10 years later and it's this giant organism that doesn't look at all like the original thing. It's, it's thousands, tens of thousands of times bigger. And how, how does that happen? It's like, well, that actually is really interesting to everybody. Like humans are interested in, in trying to understand the world around them. And so, you know, to say like, that that's a phenomenon in the world that you could really dig your teeth in and into and try to understand, but it's totally different than saying, I'm going to get kids excited about, you know, uh, titration. Yeah. Oh, titration. Nobody likes titration, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, photosynthesis or, you know, uh, I want, I want to, I want them to learn the parts of the cell. Why? Why would I want to know the parts of a cell? Because people don't know the names of things, you know, and they want to know. And then you can say the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell in a, right. at, a, at a dinner party. And everyone's like, yeah, that's right. Or, or win trivia at the, at the bar. You right. know. What is the mitochondria? It's the powerhouse. powerhouse of the cell. Yes. Yes. What does that mean? No. I don't know, but I know that it means that it maybe generates power. Maybe there's, maybe there's right. like a little, uh, you know, a generator, actual generator in there, like a little gas powered generator inside the, or- or a hybrid. It's a hybrid. Oh, it's a hybrid. Yeah, battery yeah. powered. I should have battery, yeah. gas and battery. gas and electric. Yes. Yeah. We got both kinds. <laughs> yes. Country and western. <laughs> Country and western. <laughs> yeah. So what? What's, yeah. Yeah. Was, <laughs> so what's the solution? The solution is you know the the big book of phenomena. And call it that. Here, here's like the. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think, I, I mean, in fairness, I think the solution is that um, at least the first step in the solution, like we talked about this last episode too, this idea of like problems without ceilings, that teaching is an occupation yeah. where you can continue to grow and learn, right? So <clears throat> you're not going to turn whatever you're doing in science, in your science teaching right now, into some new form of ambitious science teaching in one go, like overnight, you're not going to come back and say, okay, I've got it sorted out. I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to, I'm going to pick local phenomena in my community. And now I'm going to be an ambitious science teacher. That's not how it works. It's a complicated task. It requires a lot of things. So I think the, the, the idea of thinking about your classroom as a place that is phenomenon driven rather than content driven that is that that is a much more important thing to work on like how could you figure out that and then related to the thing that we were talking about is 
specifically around the cultural part is how do I start to talk with my kids about their ideas instead of to my kids about my ideas? So if you want to talk about two important transit transformations that you can think about in your science teaching, those I would work on those for a long time before I start worrying about whether the phenomenon that I'm picking are culturally and contextually important to my kids. Not because I don't think that's important and necessary, but because I think it's not a good starting point, right? A good starting point is for most teachers of science are those, those other two things. How do I talk with my kids about their ideas instead of to my kids about my ideas? And how do I think about my science classroom being a place where kids are trying to explain phenomenon rather than being taught the explanations of other people um, that they just remember? Well, I think it comes back to the, the big overarching theme of the show, teaching is relational work. Yes, sir. That is correct. Uh, and that yeah. means building relationship is, uh, that's a, a discourse-based thing. You talk with kids, you understand them, you get to figure out what's what's going on in their heads. And so if, if, you know, a teacher is standing behind some lab table doing demonstrations and doesn't engage with their students, it's a performative task. Yeah. And they could do that in an empty room and they could record it on, uh, with a, you know, an owl 360 camera yeah. and project it out there and, Woo, put it that's up on some, YouTube and blow everybody's mind. Right. But that's not the version of teaching we're selling here. Right. No. And I think, you know, this idea, you know, going, coming back again to this, like, well, then why does this, like, let's pick a local community issue um, feel so compelling. Right. And I think part of the, part of the, the compellingness is it's a shortcut to the hard work. Some can be a shortcut to the hard work where you say like, okay, well, I'm going to pick something in the local community and kids are going to be naturally interested in it because it's an issue in the local community. So I don't have to do the hard work of, of doing the culturally responsive part of the teaching thing. I'm just going to pick this, this thing that they're going to be really interested in. And as I, I was, I was thinking about this as you were talking and, um, and it made me think of uh, the similar argument in educational technology about like, oh, it'll just be interesting because we're going right. to use iPads. Yeah. And it's like, okay, no, that's not how that works. And in the same way, <clears throat> picking an issue in the local community isn't naturally going to make what you're doing in your science teaching good. It's, it, it can help. It can be interesting. It can be cool, but it's not what makes for good teaching. Good teaching is not that thing of choosing <clears throat> choosing some local issue that you're going to investigate, quote unquote, investigate. It's the, how you do the investigation is what matters. It's the, it's the day-to-day teaching. It's how you interact with your kids in the moment, in the classroom, the improvisational work of teaching that is where this happens, not in the, I'm going to pick this thing in the community that they're going to be super excited about. Yeah. It's interesting. You talk about the iPads because there was that when iPads came out, they were just like, well, kids are going to like, they're it's going to, revolutionize how people learn because they're just going to be engaged with, you yeah. know, pushing the screen and touching the screen and yeah. doing things. And it's just like, nope, that did not happen. You know? No. And, and, you know, and we've talked about this on, on other occasions, but that that's a trope in, in ed- right. educational technology, right? Like we, I always pick MOOCs because it's just such a ludicrous example, right? Where they're like for about a year, they were like, 
MOOCs are going to destroy universities because this is going to be the way everybody learns now. We don't need all this, all these trappings, all these, all this coursework and credits. We're just going to do MOOCs and badges and everything's going to be right with the world. And, you know, not surprisingly, turns out that's not a solution. And again, it's, it's this, um, and this is something we talked about too, but this, you know, this like sort of sil- silver bullet notion of how you're going to solve problems, like complex things like teaching and learning don't have simple solutions. We were talking about wicked problems. I was going to jump in and say that there there are no easy solutions in education. There are no quick fixes. Yeah. You know, everything is about like, because it's a relational activity, these, you know, relationships are complex and building relationships is hard and understanding relationships is hard. And so if, if, teaching and learning is relational work, then there's no like, Hey, I'm just going to do this one thing. And that one thing is going to make all, it's going to cure all the ills. It's just not and because kids are different and people are different. And, you know, what might work with one kid isn't going to work with another kid. And what, mm-hmm. you know, there's, it's just a complex thing. And like how one kid understands something might be different than another kid. But we do know that building relationships, talking with kids, helping to understand where their ideas are, right. Whether it's in science or something else. And, and that's the, that's the, uh, that's the building block. You know, that's the building block for, the solution, the solution or a solution or finding solutions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like everything that really matters or is good, the change takes time and work, right? It, it's, it, you know, again, like we're, we're a culture and I think maybe all cultures, I don't know all cultures, but American culture is obsessed with the quick fix with the, Oh, if you just, you know, drink, blueberry juice every morning and it's fresh squeezed, then you're going to be your perfect self, right? Your body will be perfect. Your mind will be perfect. You will be an unstoppable force in the universe. And it's like, yeah, okay. So that seems likely is that blueberry juice is the solution we've been looking for all this time, but people are willing to, to believe this stuff. Right. And, and maybe this is another science thing that we don't, you know, that, (laughs) that that we could talk about another time which is like the the where does this notion of simple solutions to complex problems come from and i don't know if it comes from science from you know experimental methodologies because that can lead people to say like oh this causes that and i think with complex systems uh like really all systems but complex systems like human bodies or or learning like those those sort of simple causal correspondences just don't work. They fall apart. Complex systems don't work that way. And, and so when you think you have causal mechanism, this causes this, you're almost at the very least, you're super uh, simplifying and super simplifying can be really dangerous because often in complex systems, the thing that matters is the nuance. And when you super simplify, you actually lose the the, ne- the nature of the complex phenomenon that you're trying to understand, whether that's a kid's individual learning, whether that's a class full of kids learning, or whether that's you and, and what makes you healthy or not. I, 
I never expected that we would talk about fresh squeezed blueberry juice today. Well, I mean, I've, I, that's how I became the perfect human that I am is I drink, uh, I drink exactly 6.3 ounces, which is the correct dosage of fresh squeezed blueberry juice every morning at exactly 6.15. Um, and wow. then, and then I sit and I'm meditate not, uh, on, on my blueberry juice for, uh, for 14 minutes. And after that, I am a perfect human. I'm taking notes. I'm taking yeah, notes. You should, on how you to be a, the perfect human. Uh, yeah. that, that must take a lot of blueberries to make that kind of blueberry juice. These are the sacrifices I'm willing to make is to get a lot of blueberries. And, you know, this is, we call this life hacking, Ollie. I don't know if you're familiar with this. this no, is a, I am not. This, this is like a cool thing that all the cool kids are doing now is life hacking. Like I'm figuring out how to make myself perfect through experimentation. That sarcastic minute was brought to you by the blueberry industry. <laughs> <laughs> by Tim Ferriss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the blueberry industry. Because, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, that, so my, yeah, sorry. Sarcastic are, corner is yeah. over. But what was it? Two episodes ago that we had, uh, we had accent corner. So yes. <laughs> with Ollie. So this well, no. week was sarc- <laughs> sarcastic life hacking with Scott. We had single accent corner with single. Ollie. <laughs> yeah, but it was accent corner. You know, right. It's just that each week we come back and hear that Ollie still has the same accent. It's <laughs> one accent. My one. Calypso right. Joe. Calypso, Calypso Joe. <laughs> That's so funny. So do we have more to say about this or are we going to transition to Joy's? Uh, I, I don't know. I think... I, I, I like to, I don't know, maybe wrap it up in a bow a little bit before we... we okay, I mean, bow it up. I, w- I would like to hear your bow. Well, I mean, I think we, to do this, this culturally relevant, culturally responsive, you know, thing, we're not going to put it in a box because I, I honestly, I don't really see that, the 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 distinguishing between the, the two of those, right? Um, oh, and, it, but, and it goes back to a theme of the show that the thing and the thing that you're describing are, are not, or the, the description of the thing are not the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, that really involves talking with kids and understanding their ideas and, and building relationships. And, and that may involve doing something in the local community and recognizing local problems and building our content around that, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it can be scary to think of education, science education as that, and that's what turns people off and, and says, you know what, I can't do that. That's mm-hmm. a heavy lift. And if that's what we promote as, but I think that the relational work is something that I think is an easier thing for people to buy into. It's like, sure. Hey, you know what, we're not asking you to change your curriculum to you know, around these these topics that you find in the community, and just you know, give up standards or give up you know your curriculum. It's about finding out where kids are and trying to build around that. And that might involve you know finding things in the community. It might involve something else. And and I think that that's the um, that's the important part. Yeah, I agree. And and as you were talking, I thought. You know, one way to think about this is um, is about respect, right? And and respecting your students and who they are, who their ideas are, what their cultures are, what they bring to the classroom is what we're talking about. It and that is the fundamental value and uh, practice that we're interested in is respect. And and they care about their local communities. So so this idea of like 
we're going to bring in an issue from the local community seems like what you're doing there is respecting them. Um, I think like so many things, we just have to be careful about that as an exemplar because there's, there's lots of difficulties. Your, your local communities are not, are not um, unitary. They are not one. So, so what's interesting to one part of the community may or may not be interesting to other parts of the community and certainly may or may not be interesting to individual kids. So this, so if you want to be interested in something, be interested in your kids and trying to understand them, be curious, not judgmental. That's another one we talk about, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're curious about your kids, your kids will be curious about science. Um, So, so that is a, you know, more important thing than, um, trying to create curiosity by picking something that they might know from their local community. So Joyce, oh, let's, that let's was move the to bow. Joyce. Now we'll go to Joyce. And this time you're first. So my, uh, I have been reading a lot. I've been reading a lot recently uh, just for pleasure. And I just finished a book called anxious people by Frederick Bachman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, with this and so Frederick Bachman, he's the uh, guy who wrote the, a man called Ove and Bear Town and Us Versus Them. And some of your favorites, right? Those right. Are some of your favorite books. I, yeah, there's, there's so many of these books that I've read that I've just enjoyed. It's, you know, I, I read, you know, some spy novels and stuff for, for, for joy, but these are uh, different because these are ones that are like really emotional books. They're ones that like the storytelling and the characters are ones that like, you know, really get at the heart. And usually at the end of them, I'm, you know, beat up a little bit because of something that's happening in them, whether mm. you know somebody passes away or some really difficult concept is, is discussed or, and, you know, and, and that to me, I think is the, the part of what keeps me coming back is just the emotional toll. You want to feel something you want to, when you, you know, read and, or at least I do. Um, and so this book's all around like a, uh, a bank robbery gone wrong. And so uh, what leads to the bank robbery what happens after the bank robbery, the bank robbery turns into a hostage situation and the hostage situation actually turns out to be a, um, not a hostage situation. What I, th- I think is really interesting about this is that um, it's set outside of Stockholm and, and that plays a theme in this because, you know, the, the one big thing about hostage situations is the Stockholm syndrome. Uh, and, and so there's this running thing about the about Stockholm and what how the stock how the city of Stockholm is viewed by the people who are live in a rural part of Sweden. Um, it is it is a joyful book that is a really hard read, and um, and not because it's like you know always difficult subject matter was, but just that at the end, there's emotional toll. And, and if you're somebody who is out there living with complex people, living complex lives, then this is a book that's going to, you know, tug at your heartstrings. And that's, um, yeah. So 
That's all okay. I'll say. I will say that one, one of the things that's hard, I know some people, a lot of people don't like Bachman as a writer, but the way I, I, I always describe it, it's like, I, I think you talked about this is like, um, it's one of these, like almost like an adventure book or one of these things where you're like shown part of a picture and then you move out and you see a little bit more of the picture and then you move out. That's how he writes. He writes mm-hmm. that you, you're, you're told this much of the story and then he's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the story. And this is really what's happening. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit more. And so each one of his books is, it kind of uses that sort of storytelling to try to pull you in and Mm. and if you don't like that kind of thing then you're probably not going to like his writing but if you do then you will so yeah anxious people and i think there's a a series coming out on netflix where a like it seems like all this stuff they're turning into movies and you know series and all that yeah 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 nice um so I'll, i'll have a joy that also isn't uh exactly um joyful but but um recently um my daughter wanted to watch under the banner of heaven which is um on hulu and is andrew garfield is the star of it and uh it's based on a john krakauer book that i read a long time ago because i went through through a sort of john krakauer phase where i read into the wild and into thin air and then this was another one and and his in his oeuvre. So I read, um, I read under the banner of heaven and it's a, it's a true crime story, I guess is the simplest way to describe it. And it's about, um, the murder of a, um, a young woman and her, her child, 15 month old child. Um, and it, it takes place in Utah and it is bound up in, um, the, the Mormon church, church of Latter-day Saints. Right. So, um, it, it, it's, a it's an, it's a really interesting story and it's well told in the, in the series. Uh, Andrew Garfield is a police officer. That's also, um, a member of the LDS church. And it's a lot of it is about him sort of trying to grapple with his own, um, his own, religious beliefs in the context of this, um, this murder, which is, it's, I mean, it's sad, um, and it's hard to watch in spots. Um, and, and, um, you know, it's upsetting material, but it's a really, the acting is spectacular in it. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's, you know, an exploration again of sort of what religion is, what it's, role is in society. I feel like this is a theme because I did this last week with the God butcher stuff, but, um, yeah. but this week, uh, talking about, um, yeah. So under the banner of heaven, I won't say much more about it, but it is, um, it's really well done. It's like a seven part series on Hulu. Um, and Andrew Garfield's great in it as are the, the, um, supporting cast, including his, I don't know the actor that plays his partner, um, Taba, but, um, Detective Taba, it's, it's great. Andrew Garfield has just made like like a resurgence. Like he's, yeah. And he's such a great actor. And yeah. Yeah, I think there's even been reconsideration of his Spider-Man movies as being not quite, you know, there were, there are a lot of people who didn't like those movies. I'll just say. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, he's kind of like a, a brooding Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, and that's, you know, 
Yeah, Jeez. well, Toby, Toby McGuire was too. I mean, I think that was part of the criticism of the series that they thought they'd quote unquote fixed with Tom Holland, right? Is that Tom Holland is the much more wisecrackery sort of yeah. Spider-Man and neither Toby McGuire nor Andrew Garfield were really that one. But yeah, he's he's a spectacular actor and um, done some really good work. But this, yeah, I, this is, um, and the, the young woman who plays the, um, who plays, oh my gosh, what's her name? It's not Barbara. Um, I'll think of it, but the young, young woman who's killed is, is also really good. And she's been in, in a lot of things recently too. Um, so yeah, yeah, strong, sounds strong awesome. stuff. And, uh, but also not, you know, again, not uplifting and happy. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a tough one. Well, I'll have to check that out. I read, uh, some crack our books, you know, I read, uh, into the wild, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of a different subject matter. And what's the other one? Into um, thin air. Into thin air. Yeah. Both those books um, when I was younger, but uh, yeah, great writer. Yeah. Great. Well, Hey, thanks for being here. We never introduced ourselves in this episode. I'm Ollie and that's Scott. And thanks yeah. for being here in the science in between. We'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.